Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He shows him a picture of Robert Baldessari. That's the role that I was playing. And he says, this MF is, is a DEA undercover agent. I'm going to go in the building. And if I'm not out in 35 minutes, you need to come in and kill him. You kill him and you kill anybody else that's in that building. And then we get the hell out of here. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Robert Mazer is the real-life story behind the movie The Infiltrator. Mazer infiltrated two of the biggest drug cartels in the world, convincing them that he worked for the US mob and could launder their dirty money. He's going to tell you how he did it, along with some close calls and some big arrests. But before we get into the episode, a massive thank you to Pat Coffey, who have been supporting the podcast this season. They're still offering the free V60 kit when you sign up for a new subscription at patcoffee.com. All you have to do is make sure that you enter the code ROW at the checkout. I'll put the link in the synopsis to this episode as well, so all you have to do is scroll down, click the link and sign up. And if you want freshly ground, high-quality coffee delivered straight through your letterbox, Go and sign up now at patcoffee.com. I hope you enjoy the episode. Robert Mazer, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for the invite. No worries. So there are people out there that are still after you. I'm not so sure that there, it's not like Lloyd's of London where you can check the paperwork and see whether or not you're still on a policy. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, and, I, and, and since the movie came out, I've had some threats and since my second book as well. So that could be, uh, as some people jokingly say, some... 400 pound teenager in his grandmother's basement, or it could be the real deal. Um, one never knows, but you know, what really matters is not what my face looks like. It's uh, hopefully um, the details that I get to share with you from the underworld and, and helping the public to understand what that, uh, what that very scary uh, underworld is really all about. Can you tell me about some of the recent death threats or, or, or I'm assuming that death threats or the things that have made you a bit nervous? Uh, you know, I got, uh, I, I was reached out by a, a person who is in um, uh, Peru, who's thrown out of the US after serving their, their sentence. And um, they made it very clear that they felt as though I was personally responsible for the loss of so many years of their lives. The first case, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, has taken on so very unusual uh, a perception within the Middle East, especially in Pakistan, where there are people who promote the concept that uh, the U.S. government uh, attacked through this undercover operation and, and created the demise of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which at that time was the seventh largest privately held bank in the world, that it was some type of a conspiracy between the Western banking world, the CIA, uh, and the U.S. government wanting to somehow undermine the evolution of what was going to become not just the, the most powerful Arab bank in the world, but one of the most powerful banks in the world. And nothing could be further from the truth there. You know, BCCI uh, came on my radar screen basically because of one thing, and that is they spent a lot of money on big, very, very big gold signs that said Bank of Credit and Commerce International. I happened to see that sign at a time 
when uh, the Colombian cartels were asking me to open up accounts in Panama and I just reached out to them like any private client would to any international bank asking for a meeting. And ultimately after they convinced themselves that I was for real, they gave me the meeting and, and it went from there. So there, there, there was no conspiracy that, uh, that existed, but that gets into kind of a, both a religious and, and a cultural war type thing that, um, has some roots in, in the misinformation that has been grown in the Middle East. Yeah, it's interesting because the BCCI, obviously, as people listen to this and get to know the story, if you haven't heard it before, is central to the whole thing, uh, the whole money laundering operation that you went on for five years. To launder cash, you met with them. How helpful were they when it came to you wanting to launder cash for the cartel? Well, you know, first of all, laundering has a lot more complexity to it than just the placement of the initial cash. But, you know, they're, they're, uh, they urged me to have the cash delivered in either uh, Panama, Uruguay, or the Bahamas. Um, you know, from a logistical standpoint, that creates problems because, you know, at that particular time, there was... Um, it, it, at the very, very minimum, there was a huge amount of friction between the Panamanian government and the U.S. government. So there wasn't exactly a, a circumstance where we'd be able to share information with the Panamanian government led by Manuel Noriega, who was on the payroll of the cartel. Um, so, so they were involved also in, in a lot of complexity of moving the money around the world, forming offshore entities, creating what uh, some people uh, under, understand and have used as a technique called back-to-back -back loans, where you you hide the, the the appearance of the original source of the money. Uh, they were involved in a thing called mirror trades, where you use a, they had a, a company called Capcom based in London and in the Middle East and also in Chicago that was a commodities broker. And they used them to to launder by having the company do immediate buys and sells of the same commodities that were very, very stable. And in my case, they were gold futures. Um, but even in the last couple of years, Deutsche Bank did that for the Russian oligarchs and moved $10 billion uh, from Russia into uh, British pounds and into US dollars by buying and selling blue chip stock in the very same day at the very same second on behalf of separate offshore entities. And it's it's a very complicated methodology, but anyway, they BCCI's their their people were were well up on on the best techniques to be used. The interesting thing is, I got to be a part of debriefing them after they were sitting in prison, uh, serving uh, the longest sentences were twelve years for a drug trafficker. That's nothing, but for a banker, twelve years behind bars is a big deal. They were willing to uh, fess up and and try to earn substantial assistance and and their story and and I believe it one hundred percent is that you know hey we didn't start our careers with BCCI we started it with other banks. Um, one of them had been with uh, Bank of America, another one the Bank of Montreal, and and other banks. And they said, listen, we just took the best techniques we saw during our career. Um, and tried to perfect them just a little bit better within BCCI, but we're not doing anything. The rest of the international banking community isn't doing it. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Because it's like when you look at money laundering, I saw a stat, it might have been on the end of the movie, The Infiltrator, that was based on your book. I think it's at $2 trillion a year is, is laundered through international banks, and BCCI is not even around anymore, is it? 
True, they're not. And um, yeah, the United Nations on Drugs and Crime uh, did a study with the help of the member nations trying to identify the total amount of illicit funds seeking money laundering services annually. Now, that's broken down not just into drug money, but it, you know, profits by illegal arms dealers, um, third world country leaders pilfering treasuries, people dealing with sanctioned nations, income tax evasion. It comes to two trillion, about four hundred billion by their estimates from the sale of illegal drugs every year. And the sad fact is that you know, the Department of Justice of the United States, which likes to tout itself to be the most effective tool of identifying and seizing drug proceeds in its best year, could not possibly um, substantiate the seizure of more than a billion in, in drug proceeds. I'm not talking about fines, like 1.92 billion assessed on HSBC. That's not, that's not seizing bad guy money. That's taking uh, money from the coffers of the bank and basically causing the shares to reduce value and the shareholders wind up paying the fine. I'm talking about real bad guy money. So when you compare 1 billion to 400 billion, that's one fourth of 1%. And that's why crime, that's why corruption grows exponentially every year um, around this planet. Wow. Let's, let's come back to how much money you're moving shortly and, and get back into the banking stuff. But I just want to uh, go right back to the start on how you start as an undercover operative working on this because you're working for customs when you worked for the uh, on the first instance and um when you decide that you are going to go undercover you obviously you need a new identity how do you decide what your name's going to be where, where do you start with your whole identity yeah well i went through undercover training schools and part of what uh, those schools offer is insights into how to effectively build um, a fake identity. Now that changes over time. You know, today we face problems from many databases that uh, weren't in existence when, when I did this. They were just emerging uh, when I was doing this. But still, um, there, there, you've got basically two options. You can find an infant baby death uh, and build on that identity as long as you are confident that the, the birth and the death or in different counties or different states. And therefore, there's no cross-reference between the birth certificate and the death certificate. And, and I always focused on that. Um, or you have to turn to your headquarters personnel who work in turn with uh, the FBI and the CIA, and they can create fictitious documents, birth certificates or whatever. But I was taught by the old timers that the smartest thing that I could ever do is not rely on headquarters to to do anything with respect to my identity, because the probability is that if, if there's going to be a screw up, it's going to be less likely that you'll make it than they will. And, um, and, and my undercover life proved that out because um, there were some documents that were created by headquarters that almost compromised uh, my identity. Those that I did on my own uh, were no problem. I flew underneath the radar screen. But uh, and actually, it was a uh, a UK uh, uh, immigration officer at Heathrow Airport who figured out <laughs> that this wonderful help that I had from the FBI lab of creating false documents, false stamps in my undercover passport. <laughs> the guy starts flipping through it. I have another month of undercover to do in that operation. He's flipping through it and he looks down and he goes. Where'd you get the phony chops? And I said, excuse me. He goes, where'd you get the phony chops? This, this right here, this is phony. Uh, is this a tax scam or, you know, what is it that you're doing? Well, little did I know 
that every two years, uh, there's a slight change in the positioning of things on the emblem of the stamp in the UK. And the geniuses who did the stamp that they put the phony stamp in had a date that was outside the, the, the guardrails of the, the, the stamp. So the date that was inside of it didn't relate to the style of the stamp that was around it. And um, I found that out later on. So uh, they were going to they strip search you, or they were they were going to go get right into you, oh, were they? Body cavity. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the one. Yeah. How'd yeah, you yeah. how'd you weasel your way out of that? Uh, you know, when you're working for God and country, you do what you got to do. And uh, I made the biggest mistake I made is I made a joke about it with uh, the uh, the UK customs guy. There were two UK customs guys that took me into his private booth. They had me stripped down, and then they had me bend over at my waist and they were looking at me from the back and, and when they got done they said well everything looks good and I said well you're not the first one to say that so they were not happy with my <laughs> my joking uh about that but um you got it at that stage but I I mean I I ultimately they found they found the recorder hidden in a briefcase that I had and little did I know that there had been some kind of an espionage matter involving Korea and the UK shortly before. So I could tell they were going to find it. And I just went over to the guy and I said, uh, two customs guys, nobody else was around. And I said, um, I'm actually a customs undercover agent and I'm working on a matter with your customs undercover, with your uh, HMS. It was Her Majesty's Customs and Excise at the time. I said, I'm working with HMS, HMCE and uh, the guy they looked at each other and kind of joked and he goes, bloke, did you ever hear anything funnier than that? They didn't believe me. And um, so eventually I gave him the name of my contact at the embassy and everything got torn up and thrown away. But a very good example of why it is you should try to uh, develop as much as you can your own identity yeah. without the help of experts. So you were your identity, you were posing as someone that was linked to the New York mafia, right? Yes. Okay. So, can you tell me more about your identity and how you, cause you, you, you have to, it's not just your name and a couple of cards. Like you have to fabricate a whole life, right? Yeah. Fortunately for me, um, after I got out of the second undercover school, I was, I was blessed with leadership that recognized that you can't snap your finger and, and, um, and, and use one of these identities. So I, I spent about 18 months putting together what I think is one of the more sophisticated fronts that was used in undercover. Uh, the difference here was that, I was embedded in real businesses through informants. So I was a part of an investment company in Florida, a mortgage brokerage business with a jewelry chain with 30 locations on the East coast of the U S uh, an air charter service with a private jet that ran between Florida and the Bahamas. Um, and then also even a brokerage firm with a seat on the New York stock exchange. So I didn't have to be the very best undercover agent in the world. Two of my informants uh, were former associates of one of the five Italian American organized crime families. These were, these are actually people that I had prosecuted many, many years before who uh, one of them wound up going into the witness protection program, testified against his boss, who was a capo in one of the families and had been in prison for quite some time and then came out. And um, so at that stage, he said, you know, if you guys could ever use me, um, 
I'm willing to uh, to work with you. And uh, there's no way that an agent can as effectively as a real bodyguard of a, in the mafia uh, play that role. This guy was, he was passive reinforcement. Anytime he played a role of my cousin in the case. And he also played the role of being uh, affiliated with some of the businesses um, that I was in and, and um, a very, very convincing guy who, um, who, who helped me quite a bit. And there was another person who was associated with the brokerage firm who is um, formally aligned with organized crime, who also uh, provided me with backstopping. The name that's quite important throughout your book is a guy called Gonzalo Mora. Can you tell me how you met him and, and why he's important to the story? Sure. So Gonzalo Mora is what some people term uh, as a money broker. The drug traffickers themselves have to rely on a network of professional money launderers. They don't do this stuff themselves. And Gonzalo Mora, most a very, very good, effective front for someone in South America in the money laundering business is somebody who's affiliated in the import export business because those are cross-border businesses. And, and obviously the, the value of the narco dollars has to be moved either from Europe or from the United States back to Latin America. So Gonzalo was, a, by my good fortune, he had only the capacity to launder about $50,000 a week, um, which is anemic when it comes to that. But what he did have was he went to high school with some of the people who were sitting on the board of the Medellin cartel, including Fabio Ochoa. And so he had the contacts, they had faith in him, and he was looking for a way to be able to increase his capacity to be able to launder. So through an informant in Colombia who knew him, um, my partner was initially introduced. My partner, um, a retired agent by the name of Amir Abreu, I must say, in the many years of undercover work that I did, there is absolutely no person on this planet who can do undercover work better than Amir Abreu. Amir is more of a street guy. He's, he was posing as the manager of my uh, street people who would pick up cash. And um, when I would walk in a room, you know, I'd have that polished business look and everybody would want to check me out from A to Z to make sure I wasn't a cop. He, on the other hand, would walk in a room and they would immediately be going, now that's a bad guy. So uh, Amir, the plan was that Amir would deal with them for the first at least four months, maybe longer. And he would be laundering smaller amounts of money through accounts that his quote boss had helped him to open. And he would constantly be telling them, you know, listen, my boss doesn't want to come out of the shadows. Um, if you could ever talk him into that, you, there's unlimited amounts of money that you could launder. My boss does that type of work for people within his family. You being the in, boss. Yeah. Right. In New York but he doesn't want to risk dealing with you guys and he's counting on me to do it. Well, I'll tell you what, after four months, they were banging on the door. They, they insisted on wanting to meet me and we expected that that would probably be the outcome that Amir did such a wonderful job. He set the stage and, and then I had a meeting with Gonzalo Moore and it wasn't long after that we were off and running. And how much money were you moving at the start? Well, you know, one of the things you need to do, but you know, we, we laundered tens of millions of dollars, but uh, a week? is it? Oh, no, no, no. I, the biggest deal that I made 
with Pablo Escobar's consigliere, um, a lawyer who was his principal advisor, uh, came after meetings in Paris where we were given the nod that we were going to be receiving uh, what they estimated to be about $100 million um, that was going to be put into nest eggs accounts in, in Europe. So we were receiving, once that deal was made, we were receiving about a million, $2 million a day in New York. And um, unfortunately, our New York office had different thoughts about the advisability of having surveillance out there trying to identify and follow away their couriers, the cartel's couriers. I was vehemently against putting huge amounts of surveillance out there. Sure, we need enough to maintain safety for our agents that are picking up cash, but um, following these guys away was meaningless because, first of all, the people that are dropping off money are not people of great responsibility Mm. 99% of the time. But more importantly, I had been told by the cartel that they would be conducting counter surveillance and that they would be looking for the same thing that we should be looking for. And that was uh, gringos, white guys who were in their late 20s, early 30s, uh, in really good shape, wearing blue jeans, pullover shirts with uh, solid shirts with collars, uh, jogging shoes, fanny pack. That's where they hide their guns. And um, this was so important, this this New York deal that I uh, decided to go around a rule that I always maintain, which I don't go near any federal agency buildings. But in this case, I wanted to get an opportunity to talk to some of the surveillance personnel in advance to forewarn them about what I had been personally told about counter surveillance. And so I walked in a room and there were about 15 guys and they were all gringos between late twenties, early thirties <laughs> with blue jeans, pullover shirts that were solid with collars, jogging shoes, fanny packs. As I go like, God, man, they know what uniform you guys wear. And if you've been around New Yorkers, unfortunately, New Yorkers, native New Yorkers, which I happen to be one of, um, but I was embarrassed out of my New York accent long ago. But uh, New Yorkers really kind of feel like there isn't much they don't know. So, you know, I was ridiculed about trying to tell people how to do surveillance work in New York. And lo and behold, by about the third or fourth pickup, a phone call came into my partner, Amir Brea, from Gonzalo Mora. And Gonzalo said, with a voice screaming in the background, that Musella has to be a DEA undercover agent, that they had picked up on all the you counters. You being Musella. Yeah, me being Musella. That uh, they picked up on the federal, they call them Los Feos, the ugly ones. Uh, they picked up on Los Feos. They were all over the place. That uh, they had tag numbers, IDs. They had, I mean, I mean, they, they had descriptions. So <clears throat> now I had to talk myself out of that. And, um, and that was in June. So I had four months yet to go in the undercover operation. And, um, and it wasn't easy to talk my way out of that. What'd you say? Well, you know, I, I I'm, I'm still blessed to today because I get the opportunity. I just got the opportunity to, uh, to become engaged, to be part of the training cadre for undercover agents, federal undercover agents in the Homeland security investigations division. And, 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 and I just got back actually this week from my first 
first uh, stint in doing that. And, and one of the things I, I try to stress to them is that you, you really need to have, when you're at your best, and when you, because your, your mind and your, and your body are so closely connected, you've got to take great care of both of them while you're trying to do this. And if you've taken very good care of your body, you, you will find yourself when you're at your peak to be able to have two brains operating at the same time. One, you never forget that you're an agent and, and you kind of give clues to your bad guy brain of things that you want to learn, but the bad guy brain has to actually process how to best do that because you need to be acting like a bad guy. And so what I did is in this instance, and you know what, it might, there's three things that, that are variables in every case, the agent and his abilities and interests, because what works for me may not work for you. Um, but you should know the menu of things that you can operate from and bad guys, different bad guys have different, uh, six senses. And, and, and so what I did might not work for all bad guys. And then, you know, it's the case setting as well, just how sophisticated is the, is the organization. But I knew that I had developed a rapport and a friendship with someone who was very, very trusted by Gerardo Moncada, who was Pablo Escobar's principal manager at that time managing about 60% of his routes. That's the guy who screamed behind Gonzalo Mora that I had to be an undercover agent. And, um, and so I met with this person. His name is Rudolf Armbrecht. He's a German Colombian who was extraordinarily important for Pablo Escobar and other people in the Medellin cartel. He was a former 747 commercial pilot, and he was given the responsibility along with another person to identify and acquire around the world, as many Rockwell uh, 1000s and 980s that they could find. These are, these are prop jets that are perfect for smuggling. So he was basically in charge of getting the cartel, their air force. So I, I called Rudy and I said, listen, there's been some problems and I need your help. And uh, can we get together? And I needed to meet with him to give him some bank records anyway, because he had been in Paris with me while we set up offshore accounts some of which were in his name. So I met him, um, it's probably one in the morning uh, in a hotel just off the runways, really, of the Miami International Airport. So it's not the nicest area in the world, but I didn't know whether or not there was going to be anybody else in the room. But I begged my uh, contact agents in Miami that they please don't have any cover because if they if they were doing counter surveillance and they saw more feds then thought the only thing the cover team for me would do to be to find my body. I convinced them, you know, Hey, I've got a, I've got a phone. You can call me. We can talk in code. Uh, I can call you, you know, what room number I'm going to blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, where my car is going to be parked. So um, I go in, I left my briefcase recorder in the car purposely because I thought I might get shaken down and I didn't want any recorder on me or on anything I was carrying. Surprisingly, Rudy was the only one in the room sat down, talked with him for a while. Eventually he was looking for the bank records. And I said, oh gosh, I left the briefcase in my car. So I'll go get it and I'll be right back in. And while I was talking with him, my position on the burn surveillances I took on with him in this regard. First of all, I thought before the meeting, because I always thought out before meetings, 
what the hardest questions would be. How could the conversation go? I mean, I would rehearse the meetings by myself time and time and time and time again, if I had time. So I knew I didn't want to do what I thought an agent would do. And that would be to counter accuse, you know, the macho, it's not my side, it's your side, blah, 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 blah. I know my people. No, I didn't want to do that. So when I talked to Rudy, I said, uh, listen, the details that your people have are as important to me as they are to you. We need to figure out where the problem is. If it's on my side, you have my word. I will eliminate the problem. If it's on your side, it's my expectation that you'll do the same. But in the meantime, we should cease doing all business. I didn't care that there was another $97 million on the table. You know, I said, you know, nothing is worth us getting compromised. But what we should do is we should think about maybe when we think the time is right together to set up a small pickup. And I'll have people out there watching my people. I'll give you as much information as I can. You put whoever you want out there. And if we can figure out where the problem's at, we can go back up and start running again. But in the meantime, I'm not, I'm, I'm not picking up a nickel in that town until we figure out where the problem is. He kind of seemed comfortable with that. And uh, unfortunately, the, the briefcase recorder I was using that day, I had reported to my office that uh, there had been some malfunction, not with the recorder, but actually with the Velcro that held the hidden compartment together in the in the uh, top lid of the briefcase. And in that particular recorder, they concealed a Nagra. So for you in recording businesses, you're probably familiar with a Nagra. It's probably the size of three packs of cigarettes sitting next to one another. And it weighs a lot of, has a lot of weight to it. And, um, and so I, I'm sitting there with Rudy on the other side of me at this little small round table and so as I picked up the lid, he saw the back of the lid coming toward him. He couldn't see what was inside the briefcase. And as I did that, the Velcro let loose and the Nagra fell oh, into, the, into the briefcase with a nest of wires. And I'm trying to act like my hair's not on fire um, and fumbling. And my fumbling was actually putting the darn thing back together again. And he became impatient and stood up and came around. And just as he came around, I just got it back together again. And I gave him the records. And uh, that was about the closest I ever came to being compromised by an equipment wow. malfunction. And you would have, like, would, would he have killed you there and then? Would that, would that have happened? Or would he have just walked out and gone? And, or, or would he have, what would he have done? I don't think Rudy personally would have killed me. I don't know who was in lurking around. Um, you weren't leaving there, though, were you? Probably not. You, you had to. You had to gain the trust of that cartel. You had to do whatever you had to do, almost to in social situations to get their trust. But they, they took you to the strippers or something once, didn't they? Yeah, Gonzalo Mora did that uh, right up front. Right. Um, you know, part of what we try to train agents to do um, is they should anticipate because they all will. And some of them deal much closer to the street 
I mean, I dealt with people in the street, but a lot of the people that I dealt with were lawyers who spoke four languages and businessmen who had sophisticated fronts. And, you know, they had people that killed for them, but they personally themselves were not the people who would pull a trigger. Mm. And um, so my anticipation was that they would try to maybe get me to use drugs or to, mm. to do something crazy. So I was all set with my comeback, which to them was, listen, um, I have a very important job here for my own family. They've given me permission to test the Latin American market and to determine what the profits availability are for the services that I can provide, but make no mistake about it. They are never going to stand by mutely. If I do something that's going to compromise, potentially compromise them, they want me to be completely under control, just like you would want the guy who's going to conduct brain surgery on you Mm -hmm. tomorrow to not be snorting Coke. So, you know, if that's really important to you, then, you know, let's forget about it because I'm not, I'm not losing my main gig because I want to keep the cherry that's on top of the cake that's already been baked. That doesn't make any sense. Mm, mm. And, um, and so uh, that was fine, but it didn't quite fit on this one, which was we were at a men's club and Gonzalo comes over and he has this very attractive young lady in his arm. And he says, Mr. Bob, this is my gift to you. And there was a, room upstairs where a lot of the members of this club would go with one of the ladies that were there and Lord knows what would happen once the door was closed. But so now I had to come up with a reason for why it is that I was going to, uh, to say no to this offer. And so I pulled Gonzalo aside and I said, Gonzalo, listen, you don't know me that well. I'm an Italian I am 37 years old. I have never been married and I have no children. And I have a very, very upset mom about that. And I'm now engaged to be married. And there's no way in hell that I'm going to screw this up. So thank you very much for your offer. But it's for that reason that I have to say thank you, but no thank you. Well done. Well, you know, that worked. Um, but now we needed a fiance. So we had a female agent that had to come on scene in certain settings uh, that were, um, that were, was involved in. And actually that helped in the long run quite a bit. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about but, that. Cause that, that, that's key to the, almost the end of the story, isn't it? Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come, we'll come back to that, but sorry about the interruption coming up next week. It's the return of one of our most listened to guests neuroscientist and best-selling author, Dr. Tara Swart. So I think the divide is between the kind of science that says it's about vibrations and the way that you think. And one of the big criticisms of it has been that if bad things happen to you, then it's because you thought of, you know, you thought right, in a negative yeah. way and that's, that's not well received and not also not true. From my point of view, when you say the hard science or the real science, we're talking about empirical science which means it's based on evidence it's not a theory it's based on actual experiments and statistics and because it's to do with the way that you think 
it made sense to me that cognitive science, which is neuroscience and psychology, which are evidence-based, that those should be the sciences that could explain this phenomenon. And the first thing I will say is that I absolutely do not believe or encourage people to say, if you just think of something, then it will happen. It has to be that you think of something, you set a goal, you take steps to move yourself towards that goal, and you take responsibility and accountability for making this happen. It's not about creating a fantasy and then sitting at home on your sofa and just waiting for a a check to come in the post or, you know, your dream person to turn up or a job offer to sort of come to you. You've got to to do the dating, the networking, whatever it is, to make that happen. And actually, it's not just that you have to to make it happen, but if if you do things and you show yourself evidence that this was the thing I wanted, I then went and did... X number of things to make that happen. So, okay, you know, you want to be full-time podcasting. When that happens for you, and you know that you are the person that did all the things that made that happen, you didn't sit on your sofa and it magically like fell into your lap, that's very empowering. And then you start thinking, wow, okay, there was a time that I wasn't sure if I could make that happen, but I have made that happen. What else can I do? That's when you start thinking... It's, it's very expansive. You start realizing that the power to achieve those things and change your life is all in you. And, and what I'm really passionate about helping people to believe and understand is that your brain is way more powerful than you realize right now. Even as a neuroscientist, I'm constantly surprised by the things that I managed to manifest or things that I hadn't even thought were possible that then start to look like they could happen and I you know, contribute to that process and make it happen as well. So I often say, be careful what you wish for because once you start on the manifestation journey and you take control of it rather than feeling like it's happening to you, that's the beginning of the rest of your life. That's coming up next week. Now back to Robert Mazer. There, there was another situation where... Yeah, because it can be hard to say no to these guys in, in power, but w- one guy hit on you, didn't he? Yeah, and, um, you know, that's an easy one. You know, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's... Uh, but he was just, a powerful I, dude, so you, you must have been freaking out. Well, you know, the one thing that I always tell undercover agents, do not think that when you're working undercover that you're an actor on the stage. You need to incorporate within your chemistry as the undercover as much of the truth of your being as you possibly can because you want to lie as little as you possibly can. So you know what? Bob Musella was a guy with a business background who knew banking, knew brokerage firms. You know, I was a business administration finance major in college. I was one one, uh, class short of an accounting degree. I worked in a bank and I worked in a brokerage firm. My first name was Robert. Um, I was from the Northeast. All these things were in common with. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Both of those sides. And you cannot be afraid to be yourself because if you're acting like somebody else, it comes through. These people have a sixth sense. They're going to pick up on that. And even if you say things with your mouth that say, yes, and this, that, and the other, your body language and your choice of words are speaking at the same time the words are coming out of your mouth. And so you need to understand how to evaluate and read nonverbal communications by others. You need to know how to speak with nonverbal communications so you can reinforce what you're talking about. When I would get into a very important meeting with a very high-level guy, these are some fundamental things that I would always do. Number one, when you're sitting at a table, you do not want to be sitting directly across from one another. You're going to butt heads. So I always tried to find a setting where there was a couch and a chair. And we would be sitting shoulder to shoulder, not face to face. Next, I'm not going to be giving any body language that's going to suggest that I'm withholding. I'm not going to have my arms crossed. I'm not going to be crossing any part of my body. I'm going to be leaning forward because now I'm leaning forward and I'm showing interest and I'm going to be making direct eye contact and I'm going to speak in a lower, very uh, meaningful tone about the things that are the most important to you and to me. And all these little things are so important for you to do. It's like, do you want to be a quarterback like every other quarterback on earth, or do you want to be Tom Brady? Now, I'm no Tom Brady, but I, I strive to be. And that's what you need to do as a long-term undercover agent, because you need every break you can, because you know what? That could be the difference between seeing the sunrise tomorrow and not. Yeah. The guy that hit on you, did he, he didn't see the sunrise again tomorrow, did he? Oh, I, know, I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Gerardo Moncada never saw the, the, uh, the next day either. Gerardo Moncada, the guy who was screaming that I was an undercover agent, um, is a guy who, unfortunately, Pablo Escobar thought was stealing some of the proceeds, trying to avoid the war tax. And, um, and when he suspected that, he had Gerardo Moncada and Fernando Galeano, those were my two biggest clients, uh, brought before Escobar at the cathedral, which was his self-made jail. And they, uh, they were hoisted by their feet, um, hanging from ropes. Their clothes were stripped off and the Sicarios used blow torches to melt the skin off their bodies. Then they were chopped up and burned to ash and nobody ever found them again. And then he went after all of their family members and all of the people who worked with them within their organization to do the internal cleansing. So these are serious people. You could have been on that list. Well, thank God I was out. You know, I could have been if I was still working. Then? I was out. Yeah, I was out. You know, we were, uh, uh, we were into trials by the time that that happened. Um, and actually Rudolf Rombrecht has said before, had he not been arrested in our case, he would have been on that list. So um, he's probably fortunate that he did get arrested. Before you met one of the top dogs, didn't you have to meet a priest? <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the guys was very, very 
uh, actively practicing Santeria, which is kind of a cross between Catholicism and, uh, and witchcraft. And it comes really from the Western African nations where horrifically people were kidnapped and brought to slavery in the United States and the UK and elsewhere. And, um, and so, so I went with the trafficker. Um, well, actually I went in my car, met the trafficker at that house. He gave me the address. So my office knew where I was going, but I'd never been inside that house. So we get to the house, we walk in, he closes the door from the outside. They were, you know, that mirror reflective windows where you can't really see anything inside. And when he closed the door, I kind of turned around and I noticed that there were uh, burglar bars on every single opening in the house, every window, every door. And once they closed that door, it was locked. So I was in a birdcage. And if I wanted to get out, I couldn't. So I sat in the couch and this guy went in the room with the priest. And, um, and then he came out and summoned me in and I went inside and it was a bedroom in the house that had been converted to a very big altar with uh, burning candles and blood on the floor and chicken parts of uh, chickens and other animals that had been sacrificed to the gods and uh, little statues everywhere. And, uh, and so the priest came over and unlike the movie where he looks like he plays rugby He's a huge guy. Um, this guy was more of uh, a little guy, you know. Um, he was about my height. I mean, I'm I'm not a big guy, and uh, but it still was an unusual setting. And he he was speaking in a tongue that I don't recognize. I guess there is a lingo that's used in uh, the Santeria chants. And um, he put his hands on my shoulders. And he looked me in the eyes for four or five seconds. And then the trafficker said, you can go outside and wait. And I was sat down outside and I waited. And eventually the guy came out and he said, Padrino says you're an honorable and honest man. So we'll do business. And, you know, there was a big joke in my office that, you know, Hey, this guy's going to get his Santeria license yanked because, uh, he just endorsed a federal undercover agent as a good guy, bad guy. Um, but he was truthful. I mean, I, I was an honest and honorable guy just for a different side of the war on drugs than the one that thought they were recruiting me. So I don't know how that kind of messes up their radar, but yeah, I did have that meeting. And that, so that opened you up to be able to do business with a guy called Alkino, right? Is that, is that how it worked out? Yeah, and actually before that, I had been doing smaller amounts of business with Roberto. Right, but this this yeah. opened up, yeah, so this this sort of increased things. And he he worked with Pablo Escobar and El Chapi, didn't he? Uh, not El Chapo, but he, he did work with Pablo Escobar. His partner was actually a guy by the name of Fabio Ochoa, who he owned jointly, um, jointly with Fabio, he owned a lab in, in the jungles of Bolivia, that he told me all about that was producing about 6,000 kilograms of cocaine a week. And they 6, were 6,000 kilograms of cocaine a week. Yeah. Right. And they were using, uh, they had me launder the money to buy the planes that were being used, small planes that were being used to fly out 
four or 500 kilos at a time um, from the, uh, uh, from the, the, the jungle. There was, there's actually a runway in the middle of the jungle, a very narrow, bumpy jungle, something that uh, very few planes can navigate. But anyway, they would fly from there to a runway on the Northern border of Argentina, load up uh, vans and, and then take that to uh, anchovy plaque, packing plant that Roberto had contacts at and they uh, they were putting the half kilo bricks they were they were manufacturing in half kilo bricks uh, putting them in the can 23 pound cans and then putting lead ingots and sand and commercially packing them and believe me when you got 40,000 pounds of anchovies and well actually 38,000 pounds of anchovy and 2,000 pounds of cans that have commercially sealed cocaine with uh, ingots and sand you you know, your best dog for latent smells of Coke, <laughs> they're not going to identify it. So Roberto and Fabio had a, what's called a pipeline. So that's a series of illegal and legal businesses that produce thousands of kilograms uh, at a time in shipments that were going to Spain, Italy, and the Northeast U.S. And, um, and then ultimately, because of the information that Roberto provided to me, um, DEA and customs a month before the end of the operation uh, seized a ton of cocaine at a warehouse and Roberto was there. Um, I was one of the last people he talked with me to tell me that the load was in and I was definitely concerned that he was going to suspect me, but I think he believed in me so much that oddly about four days later, his wife reached out to me and after making coded communications and uh, calls we met and she said, uh, Roberto has a message for you. He says that you're the only one he can trust. And so we need your help. Um, so we're going to give you responsible for taking him down. Yeah. How did that feel? Cause you must've been quite close to him. We always switched on to, I'm going to get this guy. He is a bad, bad dude. I'm going to get him. Or we, was there a part of you that was almost like, Oh man, I've I've got really got to know this guy. Yeah, you know, I think the movie uh did a good job about the relationship between um Brian Cranston and Benjamin Bratt, the two actors that uh, play those parts, Benjamin Bratt playing Roberto. Um, you know, there was certainly I as I told Brian Cranston, I said, you know, Brian, I'm not a very good actor. He then he just laughed and said, you know, Bob, you better be because you know, you don't get second takes. And I said, yeah, well, okay. If I'm a good actor, I'm kind of like uh, Joe Pesci. The, but the only thing I can do is play a little mobster kind of guy. Um, I can't play an 18 wheeler truck driver. I, I, I can't play all kinds of different things. I, I'm stuck in this one, one role. And um, I if I don't like somebody, they know I don't like them, but you know, we find a way to get along because it's business. Um, or if it bothers me too much, then we're not going to even do business. And in Roberto's case, if he hadn't been a drug dealer, um, you know, I can see where we probably could have somehow become friends. You know, I, I used every single technique that I had been taught in the undercover schools to get myself from being a person he met that he didn't trust 
to being someone that at least other people say he perceived to be the son he never had. And there were many, many different methodologies that were used, uh, some of which were taught me, taught to me by the mobster who played my bodyguard, who, who I said, you know, hey, Roberto keeps telling me that he's, he wants to close it. He, he's, we're going to be doing big business. We're partners, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, we get this anemic amounts of money, 100,000, 200,000. But when I'm, you know, he's bringing in 2,000 kilos and he's getting 15,000 a kilo. You know, that's not $200,000 at a shot. Do the math. I mean, there's tens of millions of dollars here that should be getting cleaned. And, and so I said, well, what do you do when you have a guy? What'd you do in your other life when you had a guy that made promises and, and they never came through? And he goes, that's easy. When, when, they, when I ask them and they tell me, no, we're brothers. This is it. We're partners. We're, we're in this thing together. He goes, then I used to give him a gift. And I used to tell them that, you know, the family blesses these relationships, blah, 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 blah. And um, so I'm thinking, well, what is the government going to pay for? Uh, probably a 19 inch black and white TV at best. And they'll be, um, they'll be, excuse my French bitching about that. And, and um, so he goes, to, uh, this guy played, played the, the role in the film called Dominic. So Dominic goes to me, uh, just wait here. I'll show you something. So in his bedroom, he had a walk-in safe and he takes out this little Paisley box, <clears throat> excuse me. And he, uh, he opens it up and it's, it's a stunning cross, uh, quarter inch thick bars of gold. And the entire face of the cross is studded in diamonds. And he said, this is the kind of gift that you want to give him. Um, and, and so I said, well, you know, there's no way my office is going to go along with that. He goes, well, why don't you tell your boss, I'm willing to loan this to you and I'll sign paperwork on it. And when the case is over and you arrest him and you, and you seize it back, then just give it back to me. And if you lose it or he sells it, then put me in for a $25,000 reward because that's what this is worth. Well, you know, this hit every possible thing for Roberto. Roberto owned a high-end jewelry business in downtown LA, the types of places that you walked in, there was this very thick bulletproof glass and you could only come by appointment. And he showed you diamonds and gold and all types of different things that he was willing to sell. It was part of his cover from where he made his money. So he being a jeweler is going to know what this thing is worth just looking at it. Number one and number two, hard for some people to imagine, but he was very religious that we would not do business on Easter. We would not do business during the Christmas vacation. It wouldn't be until three Kings day that we would then resume business. And, and so he's a devout Catholic. He's a jeweler. And now I'm going to give it to him and I'm going to give it to him in a way that passively reinforces the belief they had that I was connected to the mob, which I always denied to them because you know what? The only person who ever says they're connected to the mob are people who are not connected to the mob. I used to say the mob doesn't exist and you're insulting me because my name ends in a vowel and you're making believe that I am, you know, Marlon Brando. This is bullshit. I am not. And then my people are not, we're just good people. And, um, and so I, I had just taken him to the, 
brokerage firm. <laughs> Back then it was before 9-11. So I took him on the floor of the, the stock exchange and walked him around and showed him how it works and who was doing what. And, and then we went to a, a social club that you had to be either a cop. I mean, excuse me, you had to be a, a crook or a politician or both in order to be a, a member. And, and then I took him from there to his apartment, which was right by the UN. And as he was getting out of the limo, I, as just the door was about to close, I put my fist up against it and I opened it. And I said, you know, Roberto, let me, let me speak with you privately because the female agent was in the limo with us. Closed the door. And I said, number one, um, don't you ever talk business in front of her. My family doesn't get involved in this. My blood family doesn't get involved in this. Number one. Number two, you have told me many times that we're partners now. Are we or aren't we? Yes. Okay. If, if we're partners and if we're going to do this thing of ours, then I need to be prepared to die for you and you for me. I am or you. Oh, yes, compadre. We are. We're, we're together. We're tight. I said, okay, well, my family has a tradition when we bring people from the outside into our business and we bless that relationship with a gift and this gift is for you. And he takes the, the Paisley thing and he opens it up, the jewelry box, and he opens it up and his eyes got the size of silver dollars. And he was so thankful that we uh, had now decided that uh, we were blessing this relationship. And within days, oh man, I was handling big, huge money uh, from him. It was really the deal maker for him uh, with me. So it did three things. It reinforced his Catholicism. Mm. It, it, it reinforced his belief in me because of the value of the gift, which he understood because he was a jeweler. And it reinforced passively uh, my association with organized crime. So uh, it was the perfect gift. So you mentioned the female agent before in the car. You So you had the fiance that was an agent that was uh, that was working with you. You guys had a wedding planned, and it was a fake wedding, of course. It was all set up, but you invited the, car, you invited the cartel to your wedding, including uh, Roberto as well, right? Yes. Um, you know, we, we had a meeting, I think in June or July, I think it maybe was in June, but I'm not positive. We had a meeting called at the, at the Tampa office, uh, of customs, which is now Homeland security. And, um, the meeting was to determine what would be the most feasible way to create a scenario where as many of the defendants as possible would be, uh, in a position where we could grab them, whether it be in the United States or in other countries that had extradition to the United States. And um, it wasn't my idea. Uh, it was somebody else's idea that, you know, they seem to really like you. And um, if you planned a wedding, they probably would come. And so I went along with it. And so we started putting out the word. Roberto got arrested in September, though. <laughs> So his presence at the wedding uh, got cut short, but he was otherwise going to be there. There were other people, you know, a lot of other people who were there. And um, his wife came, didn't she? Didn't she help? Him no, his wife did not come. His wife, oh. 
Well, at that stage, his wife had asked me to meet with her, and I did. She gave me details about the distributors. We talked about the lawyers being paid, that I needed to get money to the lawyers. She handed cash off to us. So she was busy trying to do everything she could to make sure that the best legal team was in place for Roberto. And she was trying to keep the lowest possible profile. And I had to take the position of, you know, she had already made the decision, but my, my position was, I, I understand that that's important for you, but thank you because that's important for me too. Cause who the hell knows who's watching you. And so, no, she didn't come. The kids, the girls were supposed to be there and actually supposed to be part of the wedding. Um, but that, you know, but that didn't happen either. So, Some, but these guys were not arrested at a wedding. These guys were actually arrested at a bachelor party the night before. Ah, I see. I see. Yeah. Cause when they were, when they were getting arrested and they think they were part, it was part of the stack too. It was a bachelor party. Yeah. One of the guys, um, you know, the way they did it is they had limos come to the country club. We had a, uh, really nice gathering poolside with uh, cello and bass players and uh, carved ice and uh, nice food. And it was supposed to be everything organized. Yeah. Yeah. A little, a little party before the, the next day was supposed to be the wedding. So uh, actually it was Dominic or if it wasn't Dominic, it was the other mob guy who went around and said, Bob doesn't know this. Don't tell him we're going to do a bachelor party tonight. I'm telling him I'm taking him to the airport to pick up my mom. Um, and you know, that's his favorite aunt. So he's going to go with me, but I'm going to divert him to this place. It's a high rise in downtown Tampa. And we're going to have a bachelor party. So these guys all get in cars. They had a separate car for each guy. And then two or three agents who were posing as family or friends got in the same car and then they took them to different levels at the high rise. And then those guys were uh, taken down as they came off of the elevator on separate floors. And one guy, there were two female agents dressed in uh, vests and arrest jackets and all that other good stuff. Um, You know, the ball caps and the whole bit and, so he's laughing as they put the cuffs on him and they said, well, why are you laughing? He goes, well, I've been to a bachelor party like this before where the women dress up as cops. And, you know, so I'm, you know, this is really going to be cool. And the girl like, no, dude, you really were arrested. And um, he eventually believed it. And there were some other people who did similar things and oh, no. um, there were a lot of disbelief. Cause there was like, there was so much. Um, I mean, they tried to get like the NBC, they tried to get like all the, you tried to stop the it all going down at a ceremony because that's what kind of what customers wanted. They wanted a big, a big hoo ha about it and arresting all these guys and getting it all on camera, right? Yeah, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. I spoke with with my top boss and I said, "You don't understand this. This is going to be personal by them. They are going to think that I'm the one who came up with this plan." And you're going out of your way to embarrass them and to embarrass their family. There's no need to do that. You can make these arrests in a very private and uh, out of the public eye view. There's no need to to run this up the flagpole. And they wanted to have a, um, a press conference with the wedding dress and all the wedding gifts and all this other stuff. And, 
So what I did, um, <laughs> the, the night of the bachelor party, of course, I wasn't going to show up at the bachelor party. I actually had to go to my undercover house. Be, I had to go to the airport to meet the suppliers who came in to get a duffel bag full of cash um, on behalf of Volcano. And, you know, they got the duffel bag of cash and they got about a half block away and then they were taken down. But then I doubled back to the, uh, to the country club and I and another person took every gift that was there and the wedding uh, gown and uh, put it in our trunks. And I got out of there and I went home and I slept for 24 hours and I could care less that they didn't have those gifts uh, for the, for the press conference. I think it would have been terrible for them to have done that. And, and even with that, you know, within 30 days of the takedown, because it's, it's a requirement with U.S. law for the name of the of the undercover agent to be disclosed to defense counsel because they have the right to cross-examine and they have the right to test the credibility of an individual. So they get to investigate the background of, uh, of the agents. And not long after they learned who I was, um, I was contacted by agents from two agencies who talked with me about uh, witness testimony that there was a contract on my life. And then right around that same time, there was a NSA, a National Security Agency, Foreign Intercept that had picked up communication about a hit squad coming from Mexico to carry out a half million dollar contract. There were a lot of things that were parallel to what the witnesses had said. And So there was a hit squad from Colombia put together to come and kill you? Allegedly. Wow. How was the paranoia? Well, the, the greatest amount of paranoia was within the management of the agency who, in my view, because their position was that um, the, the appropriate thing to do was to create uh, a team of 12, uh, six working on 12 hour shifts and the next six working on the other 12 hour shifts. And they were going to be in my home, uh, taking me and my family to wherever we went. And uh, they were going to be heavily armed. And, um, and I said, are you out of your mind? I've been away from my family for the most part of the last two years. And now you're going to bring all these weapons in my house and you're going to be giving my kids who then were 11 and 13, the impression that some boogeyman is going to jump through the window and kill them. Mm. And you and I both know that 30 days into your detail, you're going to come back and you're going to say that we cannot confirm or deny. And so you're going to stop the detail. And then my kids will have nightmares if they haven't already uh, for many, many years to come. Mm. And this is crazy. So what I had done is during the course of the undercover operation, my partner and I realized that these were the absolute real deal and that there was probably going to be consequences, personal and safety consequences. So I built a totally separate false ID strictly for the purposes of using it for me to jump into that if there was a threat against my life. And I, in black and white, wrote memos, making requests, and the regional commissioner, who there were seven, I think, regional commissioners in the United States, and then the commissioner that was over them in Washington. But I got the Southeast Regional Commissioner to agree in writing that we would simply use the false ID. Um, I signed over my home which is about the only asset I had at the time to a lawyer who would sell the house. And 
they would help finance um, a, a rental uh, for a period of time while we did assessments. And I and my family basically uh, went underground for a couple of years. Really? God. You can't, you, after the so obviously you go through the court cases and stuff and you have to go on all the you have to be a witness and get cross examined and everyone gets put in jail everyone gets time everyone gets done then you go underground and you're underground for a couple of years on a different identity you go back into you go back into it though don't you, you go back and you join the DEA and become a undercover agent again yes um, why why would you do that yeah. That first ride within the underworld, that showed me that something existed that I always believed existed, but that the rest of the world did not have the capacity to acknowledge. And that is that there is a significant segment of the banking and business community that provides critical money laundering services to the underworld. And that's why we never see 98% of the illicit proceeds generated by these criminal organizations. That's why they own countries. Like we recently extradited the, the recently uh, deposed president of Honduras um, and, and a room full of senators from Honduras who had sold their country to uh, the cartels. That's why this past year, the former, the, the actual acting at the, the, the active Secretary of Defense for the country of Mexico, General Salvador Sinfuegos, was arrested in the United States for being a part of a cartel. Look at like the 80s and stuff, and you think that happened back then. But what you're saying is it's very much big, as big or if not bigger, but no one can see it now. It's bigger now. And I believed that the only way that I was going to be able to get the proof to show the rest of the world about the extensive involvement of the professionals laundering money was if I went back into the underworld and used that for the purposes of being able to work myself close to those professionals and get the evidence that showed that, hey, the first, the first go around on this was not an anomaly. This is the truth of what it is that's going on. And really for me, the Cali cartel which was the, the, the target of the next operation, the Cali cartel and some members of the Panamanian underworld. That was a tool. That was a tool for me to use to be able to get to that corrupt portion of the, of the business world. And that's the subject of my new book that's just come out uh, called The Betrayal. Unfortunately, I got my knees cut out from underneath me in the course of that effort because unfortunately for me, corruption hit next door. And that was one of the undercover agents that was previously working with me on the operation within DEA was on the payroll of the Cali cartel and sold sold me out and almost got me killed. So, um, and that's close. Like how close were you to getting killed? (laughs) Uh, You can read the opening forward of the, of the book. Basically I'm sitting in, in an office in Panama that I shared with a very high level bad guy. And um, that guy was in England. So I was there with another undercover agent and, and I'm very high money launderer for the Cali cartel. Who's a pilot as well was, had just landed his plane in Punta Patia airport in Panama, which is right near downtown. And he gets in a Jeep 
with some Sicarios with with uh, Mac tens and and uh, AK forty sevens, and he shows him a picture of Robert Baldessari. That's the role that I was playing, and he says, "This MF is is a DEA undercover agent." And if, well, he doesn't tell them that right up front. He tells them that later, but he says, listen, this is the guy I'm coming to meet. I'm going to go in the building. And if I'm not out in 35 minutes, you need to come in and kill him. You kill him and you kill anybody else that's in that building. And then we get the hell out of here. So he goes in, we have the meeting. I notice how fidgety is throughout the whole thing. And um, he leaves. And as he's leaving, he runs into them (laughs) and turns them around. And um, and tells him, uh, Baldessari is a DEA undercover agent. We know it. We know it for a fact. And the next time we meet him will be his last day on this planet. And um, and thank God the meeting didn't last 26 minutes because if it had lasted 26 minutes, I would have been killed. But um, but it didn't. And he and a couple of other people at the highest levels knew and. Um, we ultimately learned that they knew because we had a non-testifying informant. Very, very rare, but sometimes we do have informants that are at the highest level of criminal organizations. And we agree that if you feed us the information about what's happening, uh, you will never be exposed or testified. So we had this lady who was uh, in a meeting at the highest levels of the Cali cartel who was told, hey, listen, that guy is a DEA undercover agent and his operation is all DEA undercover agents and informants. The problem we had was we had that from a very credible source, but that was a non-testifying source. So at that stage, there was another, well, we were going to run that operation for quite some time, but my bosses wanted it over as quickly as possible. Oh yeah. I, I would have thought you would want it over as quickly as possible. Once you find no, I want to run it because the only way we're going to catch this guy is if I disinformation him and then we do everything we can to intercept his communications. And, you know, we needed, to, we needed to get DNA. him. They already know. A couple of them knew, I would say 10% or less than 10, about 6% of the people I dealt with knew I had another 25 people I'm dealing with who had no idea. And um, I actually asked to go back undercover in Colombia. And my boss told me, are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? That's a good question. (laughs) That's a very good question. Well, you have to remember, I had this disease. Information is my heroin. And and so, um, but they gave me three months. They said, you got three months, but that operation has to be over in three months. And so that last three months, the most important case that I could gather evidence on in my life was to put that cop away for as long as possible. Mm. And it worked and we got him. Nice. You were, you, so you were effectively the money, one of the money managers for the Kelly cartel. But if you were previously working with the Medellin cartel, from what I've seen on like the Netflix documentaries and stuff, it, it seems like there's crossover there, and they that those cartels would would effectively know each other, or you would be identified by the Cali cartel as someone that informed on or was an undercover uh, customs agent that got some of the Median cartel done. Were you not concerned at all that there would be crossover and that you would get busted or get that they'd find you out because of your previous work with the Median cartel? 
listen, there's always a chance of being compromised, but I really felt that number one, uh, the change of my appearance, which <laughs> I, I, I went through that, uh, haircut, beard removal, beard removal, wearing glasses, a whole different thing. And I was sitting just after the end of the the first operation, I was sitting in in the living room with my wife and my kids came in. They thought my wife was meeting with a businessman, you know, on some kind of, uh, you know, getting uh, air conditioning vent uh, the air, air conditioners exchanged or something along those lines. They didn't even recognize me. But beyond that fact, you know, there, there's two to 300 miles between the two cities, number one. Number two, they were arch enemies. Uh, by this particular time, most of the people that I had dealt with had been either murdered or had been kidnapped and tortured to the point that they didn't want anything to do with this stuff anymore. I never dealt with anyone in the Cali cartel. And when you deal as a money launderer, you are a secret because nobody wants their money man to be known by anybody else. So there were a lot of things that I thought were in my advantage, but my assessment of these things and, you know, Hey, I was approached by DEA. They're the ones who asked me, they said, you know, would you be willing to do another undercover? And I said, yes. Um, But that's of course, because I had the disease, you know, information is my heroin. Robert Mazer, it's been a privilege to chat to you. It's been so interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. No, thank you. And where can people find out more about you and about your latest book? Sure. Um, you know, I have a website. It's just my name with no space between the two names, Robert Mazer, M-A-Z-U-R. So if you go on there, there's a there's a lane you can go through for the infiltrator book and one you can go through for the betrayal. And, and there's also information about my writing. I write articles on a, on a continuing basis about these problems that are published. And there are articles written about me that are in there. And, and then I'm also uh, globally, I speak. So uh, uh, there's information about my speaking services uh, and consulting services as well. Brilliant. And we'll put the links in the details, but underneath the podcast where you're listening to the podcast now, just scroll down and you'll see underneath the synopsis about what this podcast is about. You'll see a little explanation and then you'll see links to Robert's page as well. And thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you share it, rate it and review it. 